Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am so happy today. I'm happy because I'm sitting across from a guy who has never done a podcast before. And I'm talking about Terry Sweeney, former SNL cast member, executive producer, film writer, actor, sketch performer, and now author of a book called Irritable Bowels and the People Who Give You Them. So when I look across from Terry, I have this incredible happiness and warmth in my heart when I see him. And I've seen him in all capacities. I've seen him working in all different ways. You've never seen me nude. I have never seen him nude. Let's get that clear. And in the last five years, I've tried not to see myself nude. (laughs) So that's a good thing, too. But the thing is, is that what I get from Terry when I walked in the room, it's the same feeling I've always gotten from Terry. We all have the people in our lives that are not calm, are not the people who give you a great feeling inside, and you don't even know why they're there in your lives. But everywhere you go, no matter where you are, what office you're in, what job you're in, there's always at least one person who, when you're around them, the hair on the back of your neck stands up, and you don't quite understand why that feeling doesn't take place to other people who hired them don't they know that this person (laughs) is a bad vibe don't they know that they're creating a aura disturbance when you're working with people you want to have those people that are calm and kind and when i sit across from terry sweeney i always think about that i think about lauren michaels in saturday live the problem with his job which he'll always have is that most talented people are broken and troubled and they've gone through a lot of difficult times and there's not going to be 
100% calm. It's impossible. Especially on that job. But when I work with Terry as an executive producer, that's the head guy. And that's the guy from the top down who creates the energy in the room and the way people are. And it set the tone for how I wanted my business life to be, which is I wanted to be around people that were having a good time, were having fun, had a purpose, had deadlines, worked hard, but also laughed just as hard, hugged it just as hard, and told you that they loved you just as much as your family did. So if you're out there and you're in a situation where you can take a job with people who you feel comfortable with and make you feel safe and wonderful, or you can have a choice to go to a job where you know there's a vibe that it's not really great, maybe the money's better. Take less money, work with people who are great, create those wonderful relationships. And I can guarantee you, if you do that, you'll have a shot at the kind of career that Terry Sweeney has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I am happy, excited. I have smiling faces around me. All right, here's the introduction. Brace yourself, Terry. Terry Sweeney is a prolific writer, comedian, and actor who in 1985 became the first openly gay actor in Saturday Night Live's history. Born in Queens and raised in Massapequa Park, New York, Sweeney developed an interest in performing at a young age and studied creative writing at Middlebury College in Vermont, where he was also a member of the Gay Speakers Bureau. After graduating in 1973, he took up jobs as a counselor and waiter before trying his hand at script writing. It wasn't until 1980 that he landed a writing job on SNL for its sixth season. He got the job by ordering sandwiches from the Carnegie Deli and posing as a delivery man at 30 Rock, so he had the chance to give them to producer Gene Domanian. Scripts of his sketches, the plan worked. A week later, Domanian hired him. Unfortunately for Sweeney, SNL's sixth season was cut short due to the 1981 WGA strike, and most of the cast and writers, except for Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo, were fired. Following his stint as a writer, he met Lanier Laney, who's here today, his longtime writing partner and future husband. The two sold three film scripts after moving to Los Angeles in 83. And when Lorne Michaels returned to SNL in 1985, he hired a new cast, which included John Lovitz, Robert Downey Jr., Nora Dunn, and Randy Quaid. And Sweeney and Laney were hired as a writing team, with Sweeney also doubling as a repertory player in the cast. Very few staff writers other than Sweeney himself and Lanier were interested in writing parts for him on SNL because of the staff's hesitancy in writing for a gay cast member. A notable exception was Al Franken. Franken, interested in writing politically themed skits, told Sweeney that due to his resemblance to Ronald Reagan Jr., Sweeney should try playing Nancy Reagan in a skit. Playing the then First Lady proved to be Sweeney's most memorable role on SNL, and who can forget it? Michaels fired all but a few cast members at the end of the season, and Sweeney left Laney to go on together to co-write the cult Southern film Shag in 1989, 
which was recently chosen by Garden and Gun magazine as one of the South's 10 greatest films. <laughs> they also went on to write for Fox's Mad TV, WB's sketch show Hype, and Sci-Fi Channel's Trip in the Rift. As an actor, Sweeney had memorable guest roles on Seinfeld, Family Matters, and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. In 2015, Sweeney released a hilarious collection of autobiographical essays entitled Irritable Bowels and the People Who Give Them to You, which was recently chosen by Vanity Fair magazine for their hot-type October issue. Sweeney currently lives with Laney in Buford, South Carolina. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, Terry Sweeney. Hey, thank you. Good to be with you so much. Oh, it's good to see you. I don't know if I bring the same good vibes to you that you bring to me. You are Mr. Good Vibes. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's so funny hearing your own life kind of played back to you because when I first was hired by Saturday Night Live, um, during that time, it was uh, there was the AIDS epidemic, and on the cover of People magazine was Rock Hudson has AIDS and all stuff. So it was a big deal whether I would be out or not. I hadn't planned on it, but I thought after all the things, uh, people I knew that were sick and what was happening, I couldn't give those kind of interviews like, well, I haven't met the right girl yet. You know, you've seen a lot of those. <laughs> you know, the right girl would have to have a penis, and that probably be a, you know that would be difficult to find. So, um, so I did what I thought was the right thing to do, and I think that um, that's what I always try to do, whether I'm working on a show, whether I'm the boss, whether I'm working uh, with somebody that, you know, for the first time doing something I've never done before, I just try to have fun and do what I think is right for, and like you were saying earlier, what's right for you as a person, not your career so much, because after that I hardly worked uh, after I came out, but it was because being, uh, this is before Will and Grace, and it was before a Modern Family, uh, all those, n none of that was around, so it was a big deal to be a gay actor, and so. But I got through, and now luckily I had writing to fall back on, which I think was great, so I was able to write. What's weird is as a straight man. Oh, you're straight? Oh my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, everybody thought I was gay when I was growing up, though. No, no. My next door neighbor went to my mother when I was eight years old and said, Barbara, I just have to tell you, you're gonna have to prepare yourself because your son is gay. And she threw him out of the house. <laughs> But maybe you're gay adjacent. You know how there's Beverly Hills that if you can't get in there, you're one neighborhood over. That's you. <laughs> you're in your own special neighborhood. You're close, but you don't live there. You that's are. That's your next book. That's my next book. I'm going to interview people. Why are you? I feel you're gay adjacent. Get out. So it's 1985. Rock Hudson is the first guy to come out and say he's dying. Did the gay community have a complete understanding of what AIDS was and HIV? Uh, nobody knew what that was. I mean, they're, you know, they had to go, who's patient zero, blah, blah, blah. But nobody knew, and, and nobody thought in show business you would, I mean, that they would be open. Like, whatever, no one would say they gay. Paul Lind never said, I'm gay. Uh, Liberace was still getting people throwing their underwear at him in Vegas. I went to see him. I threw my underwear at him. Oh, you did. Well, that that see, gay adjacent. <laughs> we're back. Um, I think what people were feeling at that time is that they hoped they didn't get it. Nobody knew exactly how you it was contracted, and I think that um, it was something that there was a lot of empathy. How do we help people? What can we do? 
uh, for the people who are, you know, because actually the Reagans didn't do a ton for the gay community during that time. So, you know, it was an unfortunate situation that it was just a plague. I mean, it was like, and certainly um, it was something we didn't see coming, you know? And uh, I think it also hit the African-American community. I mean, in other countries, in Africa, it's still uh, a huge issue. Um, but, uh, you know, you get through whatever you get through. Everybody helped. Is there a point in your life, because I know you had a girlfriend. Yeah, she could rope steers and ride a horse. <laughs> I mean, she was from Montana. so um, She didn't have a penis. No, and I looked, but no, <laughs> I couldn't find anything. Presumably blood flowed during that relationship. Well, I would say that there was a lot of kissing, a lot of hand-holding. There wasn't a lot of penetration. Um, but there was, that there was other things that, yeah. But when you were in that relationship, are you thinking to yourself, what am I doing? I'm living a lie here. Well, I was a cheerleader uh, in college also, <laughs> so as a male cheerleader. But the male cheerleader holds the girl up by the panties. I kind of tried to be a comfort and a source of inspiration for the football team. Um, I focused more on that than on the the girls in the Got it. Okay. at college, All yeah. Right. But anyway, it was fun. I had a lot of fun in college. And girls love, you know, girls love gay guys, so I was so popular. Why do girls love gay guys? Because we're not trying to get in their pants. Don't you understand that? But unless they're our size, um, then, <laughs> then maybe we try them on. But no, I because we we're, we're they don't get that vibe from us. That that's what we want. And we talk. We have so much in common with the things we're interested in, you know, clothes and fashion and, and hair and those and flowers and whatever. They, they love all the same interests, but guys are just kind of staring at their chests and they have to tell them their eyes are up here and all that. They don't, you don't do that with a gay guy. Although a gay guy might say, you might try a better bra because you're not wearing, it's not. <laughs> That's the kind of thing we would give them a hint about. I'm going to go shopping with you. Don't go, don't go bra shopping by yourself because obviously that's not working. <laughs> so that's why they like gay men. What's the best advice you ever gave a woman who was your best friend? Um, uh, only date straight guys. Because <laughs> 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 you're never going to change anybody. <laughs> it's, it's just just the way it is. Because they'll go, you know, he's, I could, I know if I'm the right one. No, you're not. What point in your life is the first time in your mind you're like, I'm differently sexually than the other people here in my school? I have an, an older brother. And he was trying, we had an electric brew. My mother was out doing something and, and he was in his underwear uh, trying to fix it and get it started again. And wouldn't you know, he fixed it all right. And it, uh, it w came on and took his balls and <laughs> with it. And he was attached to it. <laughs> and uh, I, we were home alone and I had to call 911 <laughs> and tell them that my, I didn't want to think it was a prank call. I go, life and death, 444 Broadway, Mespica Park, hurry. And so, I mean, it did like a, you thought a plane had crashed in our street. But anyway, they came in, and my brother, they could not detangle um, his, uh, you know what's, from the vacuum cleaner. So he had this giant vacuum cleaner with this long, like, you know, five-foot 
stainless steel handles sticking up in the in the sky. So he'd be carried off by EMTs. They threw a sheet over it, which was unfortunate because it looked like a giant pup tent from his penis. And people were going, what's going on? The whole neighborhood came out. And I said, he accidentally vacuumed his balls. I said, it could happen to anyone. But nobody thought that, believed that story. You know, we thought it was going to be teen girls nuts with Hoover. But my mother came home and we're driving to the hospital. And my mother said, well, you know what this means? And I said, what, you know? And she said, you're going to have to produce my grandkids. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, this woman thinks I'm going to be like some toy poodle. I'm going to just be like producing like a litter of pups for it. So my parts were, I'm like, um, I don't think so, perhaps. And I was thinking back that she didn't notice all the hints I had. So when I was a kid, I was thinking, like, you know, remember you got me that Zorro doll, and I took <laughs> off all the clothes except the mask and the cape. <laughs> And I had him riding bareback on a horse. And all over, I carried that thing everywhere. Um, other people would notice and look at that little toy I was carrying, but my mother was like, ah, isn't that adorable? Um, so, and also there was a box, a pink box in her closet that had these beautiful velvet pumps. And she apparently never noticed that box was in a different place every time she came home because somebody had been trying them on and pretending to walk into a, a waterfront bar and saying things like, buy a girl a drink, sailor. Um, and I, I don't think... <laughs> That is the average heterosexual child who wants to say, how many runs batted in and got a home run today, Dad? Uh, that, so I knew that I was going a different how way. How old were you then? Oh, well, God, I was about uh, 10, 11. I was already experimenting with things and attracted to certain things. But I believe when the doctor slapped me on the ass, I might have gone, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Other children may have cried, but not me. I was like, do I know you? Is there a Mrs. Dr. Mills? <laughs> this is why people were going when I was leaving L.A. to go to the South, the, you know, the, the reddest state in the Union in my book. It was like South Carolina. It's like a gay, a gay people going there. How long ago did that happen? That happened about, well, eight years ago. I, you know, went out there. And Lanier's from this. The, oh. My hubby oh, is okay. from South Carolina. So he wanted to go back to the South. When you marry a Southerner, it's only a matter of time before they get you to go back to the South. They miss it. And once you're there, you'll find out why. I mean, now fried chicken's everywhere, but before it was only really there, made just perfectly. It's worth going back for. But they're wonderful people. I actually, the South would be a big surprise, but when I, before I went there, people in LA were going, oh, you know, you're gay, you're gonna be mobs outside your house, you know, going, you know, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, throwing bricks through your window. So we were a little bit nervous and apprehensive about going back. But instead, it turned out we were like the visiting pandas from China. We were like, <laughs> remember Yin and Yang, those two pandas that came? People go like, I'm having the gays for lunch today. Well, I'm having the gays of my house tomorrow night for a sit-down dinner. Well, the gays are coming to see the roses in my garden on Saturday. I wish I could have you, but it's just me and the gays. We have so we were the gays who were so popular, and we were the Hollywood gays. So we, that even gave us more gay status. How many people live in the town? Three thousand.
That would be called a whistle stop town. Some would say I've had my share of whistles. I'm very happy to say. <laughs> yes, they stop and whistle when they see me. Uh, yes, but it's a it's a crazy small town. But the South is great for writers. I mean, one of the first weeks I was there, Lanier took me to a restaurant in this small town. We went to a place called the Squat and Gobble, which <laughs> I was fascinated by because I thought, okay, so that you decided that was the best name for your restaurant, the Squat and Gobble. I was. Thinking Thinking of what kind of big brains were sitting around a table trying to figure out what should we call this? What did they turn down? The chew and poo? <laughs> I mean, what's worse than the squat? Squat and gobble sounds like you're into a strange, kinky scene that nobody should be into. You know, and so once I'm there, this waitress comes to take our order, and, and she said, um, "Well, I should tell you the specials first. I've got, um, we've got cheese omelet, we've got mac and cheese, um, we have cheese blintzes." And I said, "You know, I should tell you, I'm lactose intolerant." And she said, "You know, I don't like those people either, but I say live and let live." <laughs> and I was like, "What? What, Lanier? Where have you taken me? We are not." Dorothy, you're not in Kansas anymore, Dorothy. What kind of place did you move into down there? And how was it different from the place you lived here? Well, our place here, we lived in Studio City uh, here. We, uh, uh, and uh, we actually, you know, the thing about Hollywood, you live here, people, I always say, I just bought a house in Studio City. They go, oh, yeah, that's where all the B stars live. <laughs> and I thought, what kind of effing comment is that? But that's the kind of thing about L.A. You don't know you're being devalued. <laughs> it's like every day. It's like, bum, bum, stars. And then there's you. Um, and so you really get to feel like ants at the picnic here. You know, you really do. It doesn't really matter. So there, going there, we were kind of like big. Here, I said, I've written Shag. And they go, oh, is it about a haircut? Is it a carpet? What? I'm sorry, I never saw it. Um, if I said I was on Mad TV, I work on Mad TV, Lanier put you five years, I don't get f a cable. I go, you know what? It's on Fox <laughs> TV. Why don't you go, <laughs> go drop dead? Well, so, um, so I feel like when I went to the South, suddenly, actually, we were getting a house uh, there. We bought a house there, an historic house from 1792. That's what it said, 1792 was on it. There was 1,792 things that needed fixing, but we thought <laughs> that was the year it was built. We didn't know that. Take that house and put it in, let's say, Malibu. How much? Oh my God, it'd be like 10 million. How much did you get it for there? It was like under $500,000. <laughs> it was like Gone with the Wind, 24, 2,500, 2,600 square feet total, but it was big. And we had the big, like, you know. You could Airbnb eight bedrooms. We could have, but we would never be and be and we would never do such a thing. I think actually we signed one, an easement, which a historic easement, which means that it could never be built on. No one could add anything to it. We were just so. You know, we were old South immediately. I just hit the ground running there. I was so like, morning, morning! <laughs> I, I had such a strong accent. People would think, where are you from? I had the Southern Long Island. <laughs> Lanier has his family there. Yes. Now, do you get along with his family? Oh my God, they're wonderful. They're so wild. They're party people, which nobody parties here really in LA. You know, industry parties, I find, they were terrible in LA because it's mostly, trying to figure out wh if, where you are in the food chain, who anybody is. Like, so are you, what are you working on now? What do you produce? Everyone's just giving their resume at every party. Nobody drinks because you don't want to get a DUI, you'd have to leave town. So it's all pot smokers staring at going like, 
Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting to hear back from my agent about blah, 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 blah. And I thought, I don't care. Where's the drink? Give me a guy. I just need a glass of wine and I can. How about two or three? Let's go. Come on. I mean, it's a party. Southerners know how to party and they're a lot of fun. So, so you always have felt in your career as an aunt at a party? No, just when I came out to L.A. No, <laughs> I just say, you have all the markers of success, but it's never enough. I mean, even, I remember when I was on Seinfeld, at the time, Michael Richards was mad because, I guess, um, uh, somebody else had gotten a, a million dollars for a movie, and he was going, why can't you get me a movie? He was yelling at his agent, and I was just laughing as... Jim Carrey had just gotten like the most money any comedian gotten for a movie, and I thought you're you're on Seinfeld. It's the best TV show of all time in history of television. But it doesn't matter. You're screaming at your agent because they didn't get your movie. I mean, there's always something. If you get something greenlit, you just have to open the Hollywood Reporter. Right? Seven figures to Joe Blow, who just got out of film school. That's a, that's a fluke, but oh my God. And then there's fluke two, where somebody's done a crazy sitcom. Oh, Rat's Ass just got picked up for, you know, 14 more episodes. I go, Rat's Ass is horrible. How did this happen? You just, there's no way to make sense of what happens in the life here. You really can't. Rotten people get promoted. You know, if someone has no sense of humor, guaranteed they're head of comedy. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it goes without saying here. It's a certain kind of insanity that you learn to put up with. So this was kind of leaving L.A. was kind of like a vision quest. You know, you could call it a midlife crisis. You can call it a vision quest. I needed to find I was making a living here, but I had no real life. And there I found a life. And of course, I didn't have a living. So then I, I wrote this book. And now I've come back and I'm wandering around the country doing this. So what are you hoping to gain personally by moving to a red state in the South? <laughs> well, um, the surprising thing was uh, in the South, uh, you don't talk about religion and you don't talk about politics. You learn that especially in a red 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 state you don't need to talk about it. uh so but what you do so you can't really judge people on where they're coming from exactly just human beings other human beings person to person and i can tell you that the nicest people in the world i'd be a football coach who lived down the street from us who was retired and um I'm a, he must have heard about the gays it was hard not to hear about us and he came down and, and had made us a birdhouse with my initial T on one side of the roof and Lanier's L on the other. And he goes, welcome to the neighborhood. And he gave me this birdhouse. And I was like so touched by that. And then he goes, you know, you could put it on that tree over there. And I thought, all right, hold on, old man. Okay, that's one thing to be loving. <laughs> Don't tell a gay person <laughs> where to put it, how to decorate. I, I, that's the last tree I'd put that birdhouse, and I'm going <laughs> and put it in the other tree. But, but I was touched for the first three minutes. Um, and then I was, Don't help. But he, um, but I mean, there's so many, if anyone is sick, they have casseroles and dishes and people there to help them. Uh, people were so loving and wonderful and nice to us. Whether they were Baptists, whether they were arch Republicans, um, they were kind and loving and accepting to us. As a matter of fact, when Lanier and I, we got married in New York because it wasn't legal in South Carolina. When we came home, the small town paper had Here Come the Grooms in it. 
in the centerfold. And I, I think probably that's the first time in a South Carolina paper that a spread with, with both of us, you know, two gay men getting married. So I think we were all doing missionary work, too, in our own way. You know, we were out, <laughs> we were out doing our, pee, our part um, for just making it just about people, not about whether you're gay or straight or it's red or blue. What percentage in each place did you feel were genuine people? Well, first, uh, to be fair to people that are in L.A., and I'm going to listen to this, I think people came here to make it and not to make friends, and that's a different agenda. Uh, and so because it's such a business that you don't really know where your footing is, it's changing all the time, you're on a show, you're not on a show. You have a part in something, everybody's, wow, that's great, it got canceled. You're nothing again. Um, you know, it's back to, you know, what did you have you've done late? Well, I wrote that, and that was a big hit. Yeah, wasn't that two years ago? Yeah, it didn't disappear. It didn't, like, it still was good. So I think there's a feeling of, uh, what are you in now? What is, what's happening for you now? And you start to judge yourself here in L.A. by um, your status. Well, where do I live? What kind of car do I drive? You know, and, and, and who's my agent? You know, I had more, uh, I took seminars with all these actors and, and everybody was crying, you know, their agent loves them at first and then won't take their calls, you know, three years later. So I think that agenda isn't there. In South Carolina, it's just people about people didn't know people didn't ask me. They know we've done things, but it's not how people lead off with. Well, you know, I'm a chiropractor, and here's the people I have cracked. Uh, you know, it's like they don't care. That's not the conversation. The conversation's different. It's about life in the town. So there's a real. I think people find a lot of happiness down there in their day-to-day -day life. So you're here in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. You make the analogy of Studio City. Oh, well, you're in Studio City. That's where the B celebrities live. Oh, and porn stars, too. They and porn them. stars. <laughs> okay, you have a certain house that you have here. It's kind of similar to a lot of people's houses. So then you go down to the south. You move into one of the nicest, most beautiful houses in the entire town. Why did you want the status in that town was it because you felt you couldn't get it here well the difference was that house as i did say was even though it's a beautiful we made it beautiful it was it was an old house that was falling apart even though it was a big beautiful house once we finished and we had faggotized it from one end to the other. Are you allowed to say that? I don't know. I'm thinking it's the verb I'm bringing back. I thought that was like the N word. No, I like it. It's so you guys walk up to each other and say the F word? Well, we don't go, morning, faggot, morning, queer. <laughs> no, we don't do that. Uh, but so we queened up. We turned it into a castle. But we don't live in that house now. It did have status. What, what we were able to do was to bring back something to make it really beautiful. Yes, we planted. We took our dirty Hollywood money and planted 200 white roses. We had an all-white garden, if you must know. I want to know why you wanted to appear to be one of the most successful people in that town, whereas here... I think you're right. I, don't, I wouldn't argue with you. I would say after feeling like... I was invisible or what I was that I did not wasn't important that what I I'd look at my work and it's there you're, you're starring in this you guessed right here you did that there and it just felt like a big bunch of nothing it was gone it's gone sketches especially you've done them they're funny where'd they go where'd that go 
Where did this go? Where's that cartoon? Where's this? So I did was trying to find what is the value of my work? What is the value? What do I have to give? And so bringing that house back to life and taking that, and that's a gay dream. Let me tell you, a house with columns and uh, that's very Tara-esque is like, you start hearing it. There's not one gay guy that doesn't go, dun-dun-dun, <laughs> gone with the wind. I mean, there's something about that that was a dream for me. It was a dream for Lanier. And, but, and it was a lot of work. It was fun bringing it back. I describe it in my book, all the things we had to do to bring it back. But you're right. I did want says I wanted to feel that I could make something. I, I was somebody. I, I think Hollywood can make you feel like you're, this is somebody and this is nobody. I mean, it's kind of when you watch Academy Awards, you watch Golden Globes, you go, well, there's familiar people up there, that certain group, and people thanking their agents. And I go, where did they find an agent like that? <laughs> Everyone I know is cursing their agent. And people are going, you know, well, without so-and-so, I couldn't have done this. I, I, I stuck by, I mean, that isn't the Hollywood. There's a, there's a certain Hollywood, there's a Hollywood, and then there's the rest of Hollywood. And so I just wanted to be me. I wanted to find myself again as an individual, not to find myself, but where I was on that Hollywood food chain, which I think people seem, you know, kind of have to struggle with here. So you sold the house? We sold the house. Now we live in a former slave cottage. So there you are. <laughs> we have humbled ourselves, Barry. Are you happy? My mother always told me it's better to own a slave cottage in Bel Air than a mansion in Compton. <laughs> I'm telling you, your mother is, was a genius. It is still status. I'm sorry. It's nothing. Everything I touch turns to status. We are really loved. I swear to God, if you arrive at the tango, uh, Terry Lair. Oh, yeah. If you want to find their house. Follow the statue of Harriet Tubman. Yes, and go to the She's pointing. There's a statue pointing to our house. But, but we have, I wrote a column in the, uh, in the local paper called The Happy Wino. And it was their, fav their favorite column in Beaufort was The Happy Wino. I only stopped it to write this book. But I would describe, I had titles like Pinot Envy, you know, in case you, somebody's Pinot had a longer finish than the Pinot you had. It might be time to consider changing it up. Um, I wrote about the mean glass, you know. You're having red wine, it's going along fine, and then you have that one extra glass, and, and you'll say, hey, like Lanier and I, he'll go, you know, I think you're kind of slurring a little there. You've had a little too much. I go, oh, really? And why don't you mind your own business about how much <laughs> I've had? So you go like, what, 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 what? You'll say anything to get the person out of the room so you can get another glass of wine. <laughs> They call it the mean glass. There's also the um, the horny glass, which is everybody looks really hot after a certain number of glasses. And the weepy glass, which I don't get. Let's just pretend you're starting your career all over again. What were some of the things you did that you would change? Um, well, first, I would say I'd probably go and be a landscape architect. I think I wouldn't have chosen show business. I'm always careful to tell people, be sure it's what you want. You know, in those shows when they go, you're going to Hollywood, all those things. I go, oh, I'm sorry. Um, get ready, kids. Here <laughs> it comes. And then you'll see them, 100 people, you know, American Idol and voice. And then they'll get there and they go, we're going. As soon as they're in Hollywood, they go, all right, 50 of you are going home by the end of the day. And then I thought, no, you, they just told their parents and their grandparents they're going to Hollywood. They're all excited. Life's beginning for them. And they go, no, get out. That's it dream over so I think that first of all choosing show business I, I didn't know there were other businesses that I really could have chosen 
<laughs> that would have made, I could have worked um, for world peace more. I mean, there are things I could have done, I think, that were more humanitarian, and I, I think I would change lives every day, and I think that'd be great. But having chosen show business and starting again, I mean, I think that I could have worked with people who were awful and, <laughs> and put up with more. I mean, I could have um, maybe, I'm not saying that everybody that makes it, I, I think the odd thing about show business is that, and it's full of stories like this, where somebody was trying to get a part and they're so excited and they go out for the audition and they bring their girlfriend with them. And she sits, it's two actresses, and they, her friend says, I'll just go with you because you're nervous. And then while in the waiting room, someone goes, who's that girl sitting next to you? And the person goes, oh, that's my friend. She just gave me a ride here. Have her come in. And that's the person that gets the part. And that's the kind of thing that show business can do. It, it doesn't make sense. It's not that good people are rewarded for their good work and their noble deeds and because they made all the right steps. Um, may, I'm, I'm one of many people that, you know, like that moment when I decided to pretend I was delivering food to Saturday Night Live and going getting sandwiches from the deli, in that moment, I changed my life from being a waiter to um, and going through the security at 30 Rock and getting up those stairs. Um, that was a life-changing decision right there. So now I probably would have been shot. Now that there's Homeland Security, I wouldn't have made it. I probably would have gotten a bullet, and my sketches would have been drenched with blood, and, <laughs> and the janitor would have used it to clean up the blood, the blood in the hallway. Um, but I made it all the way through to the top. And, and then I left. I went back to being a waiter um, for the next week, and then I get this call from Gina Manian saying, by the way, what are you doing now? Where are you? I've just read these sketches. They're amazing. What are you doing? I said, well, I said, well, I'm a waiter. And she goes, not anymore. Starting tomorrow, you're a writer for Saturday Night Live. So within one week, my life changed. So I've had those moments. That was, that's my moment during that. So I think that once you, I'm still on this journey here. You just don't know. Uh, Maybe I'm a pagoda, maybe I'm Betty White by the time, maybe, <laughs> I don't know when. You just don't know what exactly will happen to you. And it's not that this person has a sitcom and they're a wonderful person. If I told you how many stories about people that have sitcoms who are a big hit, and they'll go, he's the biggest asshole in the world. You can't look at him when you're on the elevator. You can't do that, I mean, the stories are endless about you know, people where the fame went to their head or whatever. And, and then there are perfectly nice people that didn't work it and then do things that never even got to do the things I've done. So I don't know, when you're in show business, you've chosen a quite a challenging career and you've got to find the love for yourself, your self-respect, the things you value in your life, um, my relationship, all the love I have with Lanier, um, the friends I have, the fun. You just have yourself. And you can't really think, well, I'm a success. In my, in my heart, I'm a success. And, and going away from Hollywood helped me feel that again. That's what's important about leaving. I feel that now. I live it. I embody it. I've come back. Yeah, I'm promoting a book here. And maybe it's pilot season. I can get a pilot. I can get picked up to be a writer. I'd be glad. I've done it all, like you said. But I really, it, I'm a different person coming back here. I don't have that same feeling that I had before. 
it's been filled up with love and friendship and independence. And I had to go live in a small, even after I'd been on Saturday Night Live, I'm writing a wine column. Here's your check for $75, for, you know, for the wine column. It's like funny, but I didn't care, you know. I, and I worked in a restaurant while I was writing the book. I was a wine director since I knew so much about wine. A new restaurant opened. I said, I'll be your wine director. And uh, people would call me over the table and go, are you a sommelier? And I go, no, I'm some old gay, and I know a lot about wine. How's that? <laughs> and that was good enough. And I think that was, um, once you have had to do something else, after you've been famous, and then you come back to doing something, and then uh, someone called me up and said, you want to be on Baby Daddy? And I flew out to LA, and I was on Baby Daddy, you know, uh, just a year or so ago. So it's just like, you just don't know. But that's not going to decide whether I'm happy or not, whether I have a pilot or whether I have a big show, or whether I have a movie, or I don't. Um, it's gotta be who I, look, who I see in the mirror, and what, who, what I have in my life, and who I have in my life. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. Go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, and everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, I'm going to choose one person randomly, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, I will Skype them in and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you it will blow you away. 
Let's go way, way back to Massapequa. Massapequa. Yeah, it's a cradle of comedy. Just because Jerry Seinfeld to Massapequa. Alec Baldwin, who gave me a lovely rave for my gave book. Gave you a quote in your book. Terry Sweeney is a comedy writing supernova. He should um, know. But, I mean, take us back to what your family was like and what your first inspiration was to get into the entertainment business. Well, I'm the son of a butcher. So, <laughs> Terence Sweeney, um, Irish Catholic butcher and a Sicilian uh, mother. So, and my father, uh, nor my mother, did not like each other's nationality. So, that was problematic. They'd have fights, and my mother would say, You Irish Mick donkey bastard. And my, my father would say, You spaghetti twisting guinea. And I would think, Wow, I'm half that and half that, and I'm gay. <laughs> oh, good luck. I'm, it's going to be a road, quite a tough road. Uh, so uh, I think uh, I, I worked, at, like a lot of people did, you know, had summer jobs, and I worked at the same place. Alec and I both worked at May's department store. Um, he was a ruffian who worked in the stock department, a stock boy. But, but he was in the stock room, and they would, their favorite thing was they had this Corel china, which they said was unbreakable. It was the first time they had china that was unbreakable. And they would throw it against the wall because stock boys were <laughs> acting out. Meanwhile, I was a cashier. I was in the lofty cashier's department way above the stock room. So you had higher status than everybody else. Yeah, I did. I'm always I'm a status queen, apparently, now. <laughs> You've made your point. Uh, I hope you're happy. So you're the cashier. I'm the cashier. I always want to be in better dresses. That was the department I loved. You know, you went up there for the furs and the diamonds and the and the this and that. And I love being up there. Instead, I would be getting in. You know, they'd give me the garden center, which had a tacky tiki <laughs> hut, and I'd be stuck there. And luckily, the guy in the garden center was kind of like Tarzan and not too bright. So it wasn't terrible. So, yes, it was May's department store in Baltimore. I don't know where Jerry Seinfeld worked. Um, Did you see him in town, too? No. Okay. But we sensed each other. We sensed greatnesses in Massapequa. <laughs> so it's the Indian word for those gifted with comedy. Yes. Did you and the Baldwins ever... No, the Baldwins would have probably beat me up if they got a hold of me. <laughs> Did you sense that they had what it took to be in the entertainment business? You can't tell this. I mean, especially now. I mean, you look... I mean, you'll find somebody you go like, oh, Snooky. Well, I actually kind of like now she's on The Apprentice. She could be. They haven't voted her off yet. But you never know who is going to be a star, who's going to be a huge something or other. But, uh, but certainly, Alec, from when we met, like we met again actually in uh, New York when I was the writer on Saturday Night Live, and he was in a soap opera. And he, I could tell Alec had that fire in him. And was not going to, he was like, I'm bigger than this soap opera. I'm this. He was determined. He had a vision and was like a pit bull and was not going to let go. And, and it's paid off for him. And he's a big, big, big success now. And he deserves it. But you had a vision too. You were in tables and you decided, hey, I'm going to write some material and I'm going to figure out a way to get up there. Exactly. So you do have to have a vision. You do, when the moment comes to you, if, if that's what you're being guided to do, then do it. You know, I just think, and he's done, he's followed his heart and I followed mine. And, and so what was the first inspiration to be in the entertainment business? I would say... I, um, well, it could be Carol Burnett. I love that show. You know, I know Tina Fey's talked about this too. It's just like you, Carol Burnett show was it uh, in terms of learning the basis of sketch comedy and seeing what sketch comedy could do. I mean, it was a total departure from, 
from any other kind of show for us. And then there was laughing and all those shows. But Carol Burnett was key thing. The Carol Burnett show was one of the first places where young people like myself would see sketch comedy. We didn't know what the rules were of right. improv and sketch, and they broke all the rules because they laughed in all the sketches. Which I loved, yes. We watched for them to laugh. And to be honest with you, those were the greatest moments of SNL because it reminded me of the Carol Burnett show, but I always wondered if Lauren was like, oh, God, stop laughing. This is a sketch show. We don't laugh in sketches. You know, I, I think I, he goes along with it. I mean, I, I but I think uh, certain people just do that, just crack you up while you're working with them. I think it's fun. I think people like to see it, that you're enjoying it, that you're having fun, too. Instead of this is, it's not serious business sketch comedy, so. Well, I've always thought you, when you did Nancy Reagan, you had that effect on the cast. Were you trying hard to make people laugh? No, no, no. But you just kind of, sometimes you just can't help it. It depends. And, you know, suddenly there's, I'm, I'm in an Adolfo suit with the little tiniest girdle you can imagine. That's how I got in the character. It, that's, that squashed everything down there. I was in so much pain that I felt like, I felt like Nancy. <laughs> I had a very pinched, angry expression on my face. So then I have a big wake. I mean, it's kind of funny that uh, that uh, when you're when you're on uh, the air, um, things happen, things fall, things break, they exist. You don't, you know, you can see something that's happening behind the person. Uh, it, it's a lot of things you get, especially Saturday Night Live, because it's like you don't rehearse that much. There's a dress rehearsal, and then you're on the air in front of like 20 million people, and even more than that. Um, so it this a combination of nerves and things going wrong and and just people crack you up. Certain people just make you laugh. Sometimes dress goes better than air. Air goes better than dress. That's the crazy thing about Saturday Night Live. The great thing about a sitcom is you can rehearse it till it's like the way you want it. Um, but if it's live theater. Or it's, um, and I've been on stage, I did an Nancy Reagan show across the country, um, it's called Still My Turn. Remember Nancy wrote, It's My Turn, so I did a show called It's Still My Turn, about her being bitter and not willing to give up anything, and I went across, I ended up actually off Broadway. And uh, I, 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 that's the funny thing, it's like those moments when you're on stage live, when anything went wrong or anything, that's what people love. They absolutely love you bouncing back and... and uh, working with it going with it many people like spade and sandler and so many cast members farley was the guy that whatever he did they just could not control themselves and stay on point during your time was there anybody in the cast that could have that effect on the other cast members or you um sometimes i would say uh, joan cusack because she could take the oddest take on something, and she just <laughs> would decide to do even the normal maid and do a character. Remember, she was in the Adams Family. She was the <laughs> net like that. You go, where did that come from? <laughs> you know, there's something about her that was innately odd, and her choices would be so odd that it would just gig it would just give you the giggles that would crack you up. Was she the type of person that would do dress rehearsal as the maid, and she'd be doing a certain character as the maid, <laughs> and then she she would do a little something else, and you'd be like. Joan, what is that you're doing? And then she's off doing something or starts something with her nose or starts saying, you go, like, what is God's name? Are you on something? What is this? Are you saying the maid has just snorted <laughs> Coke and is now on the... Yeah, it was all ridiculous choices she'd make, so I, I thought it was fun. What's your first inspiration to write? Why writing 
and why performing? It, uh, I have a friend came by my apartment in New York and said, uh, we were supposed to actually lay out in the sun on one of those tar roofs or something and laugh and talk, you know, on the, on the top of your building. And the guy said, well, I'm not going to lay out today because I'm, I'm actually uh, going to Saturday Night Live. I'm, I'm submitting my stuff to Saturday Night Live. And I said, you are? And I kept thinking, I'm funnier than this guy. What? He goes, yeah, uh, I got an agent who's putting, you know, sending my stuff in and blah, 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 and I should hear, and just going on and on very smugly about how he was, get, he was sure he was going to get it. And so I thought, oh, so I'm can- so I got to cancel. So I thought, okay. I thought, so, oh, Saturday Night Live. I have no agent. I don't know anybody. I just put on the biggest pot of coffee. And, oh, he said it's the last day, because I said, maybe I should apply. He went, don't bother. It's the last day. You're too late. And I was like, oh, I don't like this, too. I don't like him saying that. So I kept thinking, you know, it's too late. It's too late. In those movies, when the words get bigger, and I go, no, it's not too late. So I put up my 16-pot coffee thing, and I just drank a ton of coffee, and I wrote all the sketches in one day. I didn't even know how to type, so I had to go over to my friend's house and said, would you type these? And probably because she goes, no, really, I actually have, I'm going out to the Hamptons. Or something. I, got, I burst into tears and started crying because you've had all that coffee and you've written. <laughs> I just was like, <laughs> I was ready to go. She goes, okay, okay, I'll type them. Uh, so she typed them up. Like I had the names on the side like in a play, and then they have to go in the middle of the page at the top and the dialogue underneath, top dialogue. And so my friend, luckily, she kind of looked up somehow said yeah the names aren't supposed to be on the side like that i went oh thank god they would have thrown these out like look at these i would have shown them around this is sad isn't it and that's when the the next day i brought them into saturday night live and then i saw the security there was very tough african-american giant men were giving everybody the eyeball and making sure that you, you know, no one was getting past them at 30 Rock. They took the job very seriously. And I looked at myself. I hadn't really showered or shaved and put rumpled clothes on because I was so nervous because, you know, remember, it's the last day, and I practically missed it. So I saw people going into the deli and then going upstairs, and I went, well, I'll go into the deli. And I went into the deli, and I ordered about, you know, 10 turkey sandwiches and five potato salads, the last money I had. I got everything totally filled with and hid my sketches inside my pants, rolled up. And I went up with, I said, "Um, lunch for Saturday Night Live. And I handed the uh, security guard all the bags. And he said, I ain't doing your job. You get up there and do it yourself. And so I went, all right. So I'm going past him. And then uh, I hear them talking. And then I said, uh, where Luis? Luis is usually the guy that does that. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, where Luis? They yell at me. And I'm like, uh, Luis, he won the lottery. <laughs> and I said, and he's off to um, Puerto Rico. And they go, Puerto Rico? I thought he Mexican. I said, oh, Puerto Vallarta. That's what I meant. I meant Puerto Vallarta. And they, and so, and I'm waiting for this elevator to come. And I'm going, are they going to buy this? Oh, my God. And they're going, wow, Luis won the lottery. Damn. Puerto Vallarta. Can you believe that shit? I'm going to start playing the lottery again. You know, I should do So they started talking about playing the lottery. So I go upstairs in the elevator, and I thought, I'm making it. You know, you go to the eighth floor. I had to go to that 
30 rock get to the top and then um i get out and there's another security guard and he this is a big white guy Pockmark face. He's reading like Chokehold magazine or something. <laughs> it was some awful wrestling magazine. He looked like a giant monster. He had like, and I'm, I, so I thought, oh, this guy, he had a gun. And I thought, oh shit, this is the people would try to get through and maybe go get a host or something. Remember, John Lennon had been shot or I don't know what had happened, but they were very tight security. And so anyway, I, I said, Saturday Night Live, and he went, huh? I went, S I said, SNL first. And he looked at me blankly and I thought, Maybe he doesn't even know what SNL stands for. I said, that would be Saturday Night Live. And he goes, you know, with his thumb that way. And I went, thank you so much. Like, if I'm nice to him, he'll give me a good recommendation. I thought, what am I being polite to him for? <laughs> I thought it was such a gay thing. So then, and then I got through to her and got past the and through receptionist, and there I was, and got him to her. And she said, lunch, honey? I didn't order any lunch. I go, I know, I bought you lunch, it's my treat. I go, it's, I just brought my sketches, please read them. And I put them on her desk, and she looked down. Now, how did you know that was the person? Well, I, I read, I read it was Dean Domanian. I could look up and, yeah, it was a corner office, you know, with her name on it, and executive producer on it. So I said, that's it, went there. And gave, I'd never seen it before in my life. And, but I didn't hear for a week. I thought, well, there goes that. Stared at the phone a lot. Made sure the answer machine was working. You'd do all, back then you would pretend you'd go and listen again. Like, maybe it's not taking messages. People are calling. It's just not telling me. And so, but anyway, there it was. I was on my way out, dressed in a tuxedo to um, go to um, a, a big gig. And uh, it was Gene Domanian. And said, this is Gene Domanian. And for a minute, I thought, Oh, what if they booked a Greek wedding or something? What to me? What is that? Is this our, so I wasn't sure what I go. Yes, and she said, "I'm calling from Saturday Night Live. You're the one that dropped off those sketches." I go, "Yeah." She goes, "Did you write all those sketches?" I go, "Uh huh." And she said, "What are you doing now?" And that's when I said, "I am a waiter." And she said, "Not anymore. You're a writer starting tomorrow. Come to Saturday Night Live. The office says you start tomorrow." So was the first call you made after that, that guy who said, don't bother? He, we didn't speak for a while. <laughs> he was bitter, but he was a, he's a, he was a cartoonist. He got a job at Rolling Stone as a cartoonist. So he eventually got to do what he was supposed to do. So tell our audience how you went from a writer and got on camera. One of the most difficult things to do. So many people have tried to start as a writer. Some have done it, like Tina Fey and Seth Meyers. It's tough, because once you cast as a writer, you're a writer. First, it was like the cast, by the time that that season with Gene Domanian, was, Eddie Murphy was under that season. So Eddie, um, uh, I, I, Gene really thought I was very funny, and they were starting to put me in little things. I'm a waiter delivering something. I'm a monologue. I'm a person that comes in and goes, I'm sorry, I didn't know this. We were on television. You know, they, put, they love me to do all kinds of stupid things. So I'd be a hair person, but I'm following the person onto the camera. And then I'm, of course, pulling focus as much as I could, <laughs> which I'm very good at. Gene Domain said, you know, maybe next season we'll put you in or something. And so then, but then that ended. And then I went off and Lanier actually got me involved with a comedy troupe. When you met Lanier, you know how they say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him? I think we both knew immediately. I knew in that moment when he came into a bar called Chaps. Um, when, <laughs> <laughs> 
where it was obvious to spot Mr. Wright if a person of quality stood out. Why are they always called chaps? Well, I don't know why that one was called, except for the cowboys in it and the chaps they were wearing and nothing else. But I would say that everyone wants a macho hot name. But so, but that, from that moment on, from when we got together and laughing and talking and, and all of it, we just knew we were meant to be together. And, uh, we moved in together right away, and people, I said, you know, we got a joint bank account. That was the first time, and people said, you're not putting your money in the bank with another guy you just met. Are you great? I said, I have $84. <laughs> if he takes all 84, I'll live. It'll be fine. Don't get so nervous about it. But they were all worried about that. But we, so we just hit it off and stayed together, and he was doing, and it was love at first sight, and I did... Um, uh, I didn't know. I didn't really know. And then he was doing had a comedy troupe, and I joined, and it's, and they all were working hard at it. And then I joined for like I think uh, I joined as I I did a, a bit as a Christian song stylist, Kitty Kincaid. I sang whatever Jesus wants, Jesus gets. Um, I used to go in the audience and sit in people's lap and take their hair and muss it and be like crazy. And then I did a Connie Hutzpah. I did another character. So I did all these characters, and we worked on and worked on it. And when we got reviewed by the New York Times, and I got a rave review comparing me to Lily Tomlin. Um, and so Saturday Night Live sent people to come see me. Suddenly Saturday Night Live, the new one, said, oh. Um, and I was cast off that. Again, and one of the rarest things in the world, you're working in a regime that's not Lorne Michaels, and no one wants anyone from any other regime. So how talented did you have to be for him to say, you know what, I know you were in that other regime, but I'm bringing you into this one. You did mostly all original characters in your audition test. Right. Yet you became famous for doing Diana Ross, Patti LaBelle, Joan Collins, Brooke Shields, Joan Rivers, Nancy Reagan. And you also did Ted Kennedy, which was your only male role you ever did. On the show, you weren't famous for doing the original characters, but that's what got you there. That's what got me. I know that's what got me there, but sometimes when you're actually there... Um, and you're appealing to a, a wide audience. You can tell people love a caricature of a famous person, and that's really what was getting the most respect and the most response. So I just I just went with that. So after the test, you're there with a bunch of people, sometimes 16, sometimes 32 people, and you do your stuff there. And normally there's just the camera, the cameraman, Lorne, and maybe a couple people. So you're doing it for nobody. Right. And no laughs. So when you finished your test, you just walk off and no one says thank you, nothing. And you go back to your dressing room and you're held there a little bit. Did you know, you know, I think I got this, or were you like, eh, I don't know, I fucked up? Well, he had seen me in another show, um, and when I, uh, when he was in L.A., I was in L.A. at that time, and he, he was, they were talent scouting there, um, too, because I was going to be in the new show. Um, he had, remember he had a show that he was going to do before Saturday Night Live, and, and so he wanted to cast me in that. So he was kind of still looking for me and wanted to put me in it. So I didn't actually have to go through that um, because I had waited for the other show. I was going to be cast in the new show, and um, and I, I think I waited like three weeks and slept on the floor of somebody's apartment and then finally I said, you know, he said, oh, they're not going to do, we're only going to do stars, the new show. Then they ended up not doing it. So by the time he called me again to do it, they said, oh, they want you to sign. I said, well, 
am I cast because I'm not going to go back and sleep on the floor, do anything like that. Um, and when he was in L.A., I sent him flowers from Connie Hutzpah, who was my character, with the note I attached how much I'd paid for the flowers. And I said, if you do not cast me, I would like to be reimbursed for this amount. Because money doesn't grow on trees, Mr. Big Shot, Saturday Night Live. And so he loved that and said, all right, come to New York. I'll put you in. So I didn't have to actually do that part that you're talking about. Sounds scary and horrifying. I'm happy to say I did not have to do that. But that's the second time in your career where you took a risk and it worked. Yeah. So that formula works for you. Now, here's another thing that I feel about you. People normally walk on eggshells around Lorne. Right. I never felt you were that kind of person. No, I talk back. Sometimes it was good, sometimes not so good. But um, no, I'm just myself wherever I am, whenever I work anywhere. I just got to be myself. That's it. I don't believe that, oh, you're supposed to, you know, just be so, and make anyone sacred like that. You fall into a very rare category on SNL. And there's only one other person in your category, David Koechner. Because both of you, in one year on the show, had like six characters on the show. No one on the show was doing that many characters. And after that year, you both... Got the boot. Right. Why do you feel like that happened when you were so successful with all these characters getting on? You know, I would say um, there were rumors that um, the owners of NBC were friends with Nancy Reagan. They didn't like the fact that I was doing her, and there was some talk about that. Um, I think that uh, I could have gone on. I could have stayed on. It's like you don't know why you don't get um, asked back or who who said what or who didn't like what. Um, I don't go, well, because I was gay. I mean, I could easily go, oh, I was gay, and they didn't like that. I mean, I was unhappy sometimes with the fact, like, if there was a part for a sketch had been written and it was, a say, a game show host, and they wouldn't put me in because, well, it's not a gay game show host. I, you see the way the writers would think. If we need a gay game show host, then we'll put you in if we need a game show. But I was like, well... Cast me in anything. So I kind of, um, there, there, I, I, and I don't think that it, they did it maliciously. They just did it because they didn't know, well, what do I write for a gay guy? I think things have changed and people are more open now, and there's a whole new approach to working with gay people or characters or anything. People aren't that, this person's gay and this is a lesbian. What do I write for a lesbian? Well, now this hell, you know, it's like there's so many gay people are now part of the system, part of our entertainment world, that it isn't a separate thing. But I think that there were problems like how did we deal with this? And it was resolved in a way, it was resolved. And what could I do? I mean, there was nothing I could do about it except go, okay, um, it hurt me, but... I thought, I'll pick myself up, and I'll do what I have to do. And I actually did my Nancy Reagan show, went across country and did that. And I started writing, yeah. And then my movie started, you know, Chag started going ahead. Things started. So, but it, it's, that's something where you just go, whatever happened, happened. I, I don't know what happened to David's story. He'll have to come on, and he'll have to tell what his deal is. But um, 
unless he was gay too. <laughs> I doubt that. Um, so, but I don't want to be a victim. I couldn't, I never believe in being a victim in a situation. If that happened, it happened. What am I going to do? You go and you decide you want to write this book. Yes. Irritable Bowels, the people who give you them. Yeah. What was your second title choice? <laughs> Well, I could have called it Nancy Boy if I wanted to. (laughs) Have you ever met Nancy Reagan? No, I met Ron Reagan Jr. And we do look like each other. He actually said you were more like my mother than my mother is because I was really her. You know, she kept that part a secret, although not too big a secret because people kept going, she is such a bitch, but tough. I think she was really tough. And um, that's the way I played her. It's kind of tough, barely tolerating people and irritated by her status. And she could have been president, you know. In my show, um, I think I, I have a whole thing, you know, about my turn from Gypsy, you know. Someone tell me, when is it my turn? When I get a chance of my own, starting now, it's good, it's kind of, you know. Hey, Mister, you know, here I come. So it was about her pushing him. And I really think, unless it, she has, was the force that pushed him to where he became president. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I had irritable bowels as a child, um, brought on by my family, because um, I happened to be, when my parents would put, like, the food on the table, being a gay child <laughs> at the time, I would smell everything on my plate. I had this odd thing. I'd have, I had big dorky glasses on, and I would smell all the vegetables and the meat and and my mother would go, there's nothing wrong with your food. Just eat it. And then my brother would say, well, maybe dorky, maybe he needs stronger dorky glasses, you know, thing. And then, and then somebody would say, I would say, um, shut up, stupid. And I'd tell my brother, cause, and then my mother would say, don't call your brother stupid, even if he is. And then there would be, my brother would go throw him out. There'd be slapping. There was all kinds of irritation around the table. There was always fighting around my table with my brother getting screwed up, F at school or thrown out for fighting. I mean, so it wasn't one of those things where we all said grace and we ate peacefully. So I associated mealtime with irritable bowels, and that's what I got. And plus, I was allergic to the formula when I was born. Remember, they didn't want you to take your breast out and put a kid on it, that that was considered like peasants and low class. And then they went, I was allergic to that formula they gave. So... And I was, I was kind of pigeonholed in my family as the one with the nervous bowels, which is not pleasant. Which parent did you tell first? That I had irritable bowels? No. Oh, about my being gay. Um, well, my father, my mother passed on before she knew, but I mean, she would never have known it if I told her. I don't think she would ever um, have. Uh, and actually, we, um, we took care of uh, Lanier's mom who had Alzheimer's and dementia. She actually would forget things all the time. And, and uh, when Lanier came out, to her, we took care of her, actually. And when Lanier would come out to her the first time, she was like, oh, honey, oh, that's all right. Well, it took it really well. But then when we were taking care of her, she would ask who he was dating. And she'd go, mom? You know, and I would do her hair and her makeup and send her out every day to the senior center. He goes, Terry. She goes, oh, Lordy, no. So he would have to come out every day to his mother while we took care of her, <laughs> which, was, which was something amazing that he did. So it's the coming out process to anyone's parent was uh, my father actually, when I told him, uh, I said, look, I'm going to tell you right now, I'm gay. How old were you? 21. And so he said, uh, he goes, oh, no. 
I go, yep, yep. And I don't want to hear every time I call you, I don't want to hear disparaging things about being gay. How you don't like it or I'm this or I'm that. I said, or else I'm not going to call. He goes, no, no, don't do that, sonny boy. Your old man loves you. That's fine. I'm not going to ever say anything. So for about one year, I talked to my father. He never mentioned anything. And one day he said, let me ask you something, sonny boy. You kiss them bastards on the mouth? That's what I'd been worried. He'd been thinking about that for a year. I go, um, no, so no, don't even go there. I said, no. I said, no. <laughs> don't worry about it. It's that, yeah, more than, you don't even want to know. Um, so, but actually, he took it well, and he was very accepting of Lanier and I as a couple and was great and was proud of me on Saturday Night Live, was thrilled. Um, so he took it very, very well. Tell our audience the greatest holy shit moment story in this book. Well, one thing I would say, well, there's a couple. One of them was a bunch, actually. Uh, one is um, when I was um, I went actually living here in L.A. And I went to, um, I moved to Topanga because I wanted to get out of L.A. And if you know Topanga Canyon, if you're not in L.A., um, you may have heard it because it's like, I am a lady of the canyon. You know, you know, hippie, dippy, pot smoking. It was in the, remember that during the, um, I think it has a history of people when during the communist era, the people that were, you know, um, blacklisted went there and it's nudists, it's hippies. So I went up there because I thought, you know, LA is kind of like a little hard edge, but I wanted some loving and some hugging. So I got up to Topanga and, um, when I was there, somebody invited us to go to a sex seminar, and we went to a Cherokee, uh, it's called a Kwadoshka, um sex training up there. Yeah, apparently the Cherokees were sexperts. Um, I didn't know that, but because I thought, gee, shouldn't I have heard about the Cherokees and their sexual prowess, you know? I thought, you know, wouldn't it have worked its way into our vernacular? that the Cherokees were so good in bed and so were like this red-hot tribe, you know. So I thought by now people should be saying, yeah, Mrs. and I fucked like two Cherokees last <laughs> night. We turned out to be the first gay couple to take it. And it's great. The Cherokees are actually brilliant people about it. They have a fireman who would initiate. They would be nude and show you how to please a man when, when you were of age. And the, and the men would have a fire, the boys have a fire woman, show you how to please, educate you about a woman's body and... And although that sounds like far-fetched uh, now, um, if you think about what your parents told you about sex, when I asked my father about sex, he goes, why are you asking me? I thought, <laughs> so I'm like, you're my father? And my mother said, uh, you know, you don't want to know about, there are things you can catch down there. I'll go no further. I'll tell no more. So, but that was all they told me. So the Cherokees actually filled me in on all the sex. So they had different penises, classifications of penises, from smaller to big to larger. There's coyote man, deer man, bear man. I won't describe it. And uh, works its way up to horse man. What category did you and Lanier fall into? I will only say it was not horse man. And then vaginas were all classified. Get out. There are five classifications of vagina. Sheep woman, deer woman, wolf woman, <laughs> buffalo woman. See, like, you know, somebody like a horseman couldn't be with a, a, a deer woman. They said that was sometimes if people had painful sex. They were having it with the wrong person or they weren't prepared for that or whatever. But 
things we don't know about in our little Western world. <laughs> and then they came to a point where they separate us. Um, the men went in the men's teepee, and the women went in the women's teepee. And um, they asked us which one we'd like to go into, um, which one of us would go. And I volunteered to be the squaw and went into the women's tent. And that's where I heard things that women think about men um, that men don't know about. Uh, they had to talk about their first sexual experiences and what about sex. And so um, the women would say things like, you know, they'd raise their hand. They go, when I first well, you know, thought about men, I thought about Prince Charming and Sleeping Beauty and a guy, you know, coming along, Mr., you know, taking me in his arms. And, so, and they said, nobody prepared me for the sight of, his, of wrinkled, hairy balls. And then the whole teep would go, oh, God, disgusting, the scrotum. People would go, the girls were all going, oh, oh, horrible. So the women were not impressed by a man's. They had never seen it. Remember Ken dolls? The dolls they played with growing up had no, you know, paraphernalia down there. And they said, like, oh, my God, how about when he, when he comes in, it, in your face or something like that? The women were horrified by that. And someone would scream, and it gets in your hair. And they would <laughs> scream, all the women in the tent. And then they would complain about how long men came to orgasm, how long it took them to have an orgasm sometimes. And they'd be like, oh. This old lady said, why do you think they call it a blow job? You know, you're just <laughs> down there, you put in the hours. God almighty. So it was, it was kind of things that men would never want to hear who think that I was a rock star. I have a friend who actually said he, he was in bed with his wife and he said, oh, I went for an hour. I was just a rock star in bed and he fell asleep and then he woke up because he heard <laughs> his wife was still with a giant vibrator going and going and <laughs> never, for like two hours more he pretended to be asleep going this is horrifying <laughs> god almighty i stink in bed you know so so i think i didn't go back and tell the men in the men's teepee what i'd heard i didn't think i'd have thought they'd never have an erection again the rest of their lives <laughs> so so that was shocking but i love being in the women's teepee you know <laughs> Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention the name of somebody. Tell me what comes to your mind. Eddie Murphy. And I liked Eddie Murphy a lot. Um, we had fun together. He liked me too. He was. Um, he couldn't believe I was a funny gay guy because he just wasn't used to gay guys being around him and being actually funny. He was kind of a, a little homophobic, slightly homophobic. So I knew he was, so I would bend over, I'd drop a pencil, and I'd go, <laughs> would you stop staring at my ass? I'd go, you are just grossing me out. I would pretend he was always after me, and that tickled him so much. And he was actually, um, he was an odd type. When Hedy Murphy's not on, um, he would be uh, laughing and talking. He, when he was on, he's on. When he's on set, he wouldn't talk to people that were in scenes with him. Or he would just then turn it on when he wants to. But uh, I liked Eddie. I actually had fun with him. Al Franken. Al always wanted to be in front of the camera, and now he has an audience. He was born to have an audience, whether it's voters or whether it's other. He was very, he wrote a lot of stuff for me. I love what he wrote for me, and he always was political. I mean, even my Nancy Reagan thing really is political in a sense. Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle and I got along so well. I love Dave Chappelle. 
We did an ill-fated pilot. The Legionnaires! I remember that. That was a Disney pilot. Yes, yes. And there was rioting during that time, which cut that kind of short. They kept saying, oh, it's nothing. And Lanier, actually, it was right after the Rodney King thing. But I love Dave Chappelle. I hope that I, we meet up again, because we had so much fun working together. Nora Dunn. Nora? <laughs> I don't like to speak ill of people. Nora was tough. She's a tough girl and I think that is um, whatever happened in her life she's just a tough character tough cookie um, and I only say not my favorite person I, I she was in an interview recently and she said you know I there were no gay people back on Saturday Night Live I thought I was in the same cast as you <laughs> um, and I thought well that's an odd comment Nora so um, so I would just say, I'd leave it at that. I would just say, Nora's, we're not close friends. But I would say a lot of Nora, it's circumstances. You're under a lot of stress and pressure. It doesn't bring out the best in you, um, some, a show like that. And she is funny. I will say that. She's funny. Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey Jr. I loved Robert Downey Jr. I had a great time with him. Um, back then, he was kind of, you know, high a lot. Um, and... Actually, once after he had started to do movies and things, and then he was slipping down into drugs and all that, uh, they came and interviewed me for a show. It was like a 2020 or something. Um, and they said, would you say something about Robert Downey Jr.? They were having a hard time having people say nice things about him. So I was at, uh, I think it was on Hype at that time. Was it Hype or Med? Uh, Hype, I think. So they came uh, to me and I, they asked me all, and I went on and on about him. What a great person. He's really wonderful. Underneath that, there's a gift, and I hope someday. And I thought, they're going to use about one second of this. You know, I can go on all I want. Well, apparently nobody else said anything nice. They would come back to me and come back to me and back to me. And I thought, Robert Downey Jr. is going, hey, I hardly know you. <laughs> What, what is all of this insight? You would think that I'm, a, I'm there outside his room knitting in the rehab. You know, it was like they're going, I'm knitting him a muffler. Oprah Winfrey. She was fun and great. And she's just what she, you get. What you see is what you get with Oprah. She's nothing different. She was a lot of fun. Chevy Chase. Ooh, ouch. Um, Chevy was not the person that, um, you would want to meet. Um, that's one of your don't meet your idols kind of moments and uh, was not nice to me, super homophobic and not nice. I don't want to go into all the stuff that happened, but uh, his idea of a funny sketch was that I, because I was a gay, he found out who was a gay guy. I should be weighed every week to say I've had AIDS and see if I was losing weight and see. I mean, it was like so off the wall to comment. Um, which at the time I got up and walked out of the room and said, you know, you know, I was so insulted by, I wasn't going to sit there for that. And Nora got up and walked out with me, which I always was grateful she had. Apparently she didn't know I was a gay person, but at the time she got up and walked out too. But no, none of the cast really, and Robert Downey Jr. too, he made fun of him and his father. Putney Swope. <laughs> Your father, well, that was, that, was, that was his big moment. That was over fast. I mean, he was on something. I think he was on drugs or had mental problems, whatever. But I've never seen anyone sit in a room and act so vicious and act crazy. But it was a shock because he was the second host. I was just thrown for a loop because I had grown up watching him and idolizing him as one of the you know, original people. But I did meet John Belushi. I met Dan Aykroyd. Everybody was nice. Gilda, I became friends with Gilda um, and Gene Wilder. That we were friends of Lanier and ours and mine. And so. But again, that goes back to the cold open. 
Lorne Michaels hired Chevy Chase. To Lorne Michaels, Chevy Chase wasn't that guy. Right. Where the hair stood on the back of your neck. But to right. you and Nora Dunn and Robert Downey Jr. But he did apologize to you, didn't he? Eventually, he came by my room and said, I'm sorry if I said that one that it's the kind of a, apology that men hate when uh, women hate when men give it. If I said something to offend you, I'm sorry. You mean if? Uh, there was no doubt. Um, so, but he did apologize. And so, you know, and I think he's had his own uh, road. That was hasn't been so happy to go. He's had his successes and 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 been had difficulties, mental or I don't know what he's got difficulties with. So I'm not going to say. But I wish anybody well, and I I hope he finds peace. Lorne Michaels. Lorne gave me a did a great thing for me. He put me on television, and he did not when I said I'm going to be openly gay. He supported that. Um, and so, and Brandon Tartikoff, who was the executive at the time. Youngest president in network history. And I think that's why, because he was the youngest one and he was open-minded. And so I'm very grateful to both of them. And I'll always be grateful to Lauren for giving me that chance. Your proudest moment in show business. You know, I think, you know, Lanier and I were in People Magazine and the People, the couples column. That, that was the first time ever People Magazine had a gay couple in it. And... Um, I think one of my proudest moments came um, years after being on Saturday Night Live when somebody came up to me one day. It was actually a, a book signing. Someone said, I just wanted to tell you, I was a kid and I was living in the middle of the country and, you know, and with my parents who hated gay, me, hated gay stuff, hate all stuff. And as he said, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I wanted to kill myself. And he said, and I... Um, saw you on TV, and he said that it gave him hope. He thought, there's a person like me, and he's on television, and he's not ashamed, and he's not hiding, and he's not embarrassed, and he's funny. He says, my parents are in the next room, are laughing at him and enjoying him. And, and he said, you gave me hope that, uh, that I could have a life, that I could, that it was, it was not impossible, no matter what I was in facing right now, if you could have the courage to do that and be out there and be like me. He said, I just needed to see one person like me out there. And he said, I didn't kill myself. So that is my proudest moment, I think. Wow. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. God, my biggest disappointment in show business. Let me see. What would that be? Working with Faye Dunaway. No, it wasn't that. <laughs> I worked on a sitcom with her. I was a guest star with her. And I thought, oh, I'm working with Faye Dunaway. And she was totally crazy. Um, <laughs> my biggest disappointment with show business, I would say I really would have. I, I think this is great because Shag, the movie, I would have liked that to have gotten. It was a small movie, only a $4 million movie, but I would have loved the reaction that it got in the South, that it was such a success. Um, I would have loved that to have been, you know, happened throughout the entire country. And I, the amazing thing is that the rights have come back. The theatrical rights, the TV rights, and the theatrical rights for Shag have come back. So Lanier and I are talking about doing it as musical or adapting it to television. So I would say, but just having a movie like that, I loved it. I thought it was a great movie, and I wasn't crazy. I went back to the South, and people felt the same way. 
What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a small town in Long Island or wherever it is all around the world, trying to figure out who they are as a person and how to get to the next level as a, a person in the entertainment business, not just as a writer or as a performer, or as an executive producer, in any form of life, how do you get to the next level? I think do the unexpected, take a chance, do something wild like I did. I didn't have agents, I didn't know anybody. I got to Saturday Night Live. You know, I didn't really, the second time with Lauren, set him a funny, I mean, I think now people have an opportunity through, um, you know, they could do their own show, selfies, do whatever, make your own show, make your own thing, find your way. If you're in a small town, get a ticket for a plane or a bus or a train, go somewhere else because there's a big world out there. So the, I think a lot of times when you're young and people around you are naysayers or have uh, their own agenda of, or about life and their limitations they've accepted, and you don't need to accept them. Go somewhere else where you'll be welcomed and loved and appreciated, and then go back to your town and lord it over everybody. You know, <laughs> I think there's so many instances of that. And believe in yourself and find what it is that you need to nourish yourself to replenish whether it's god or whether it's love whether it be vegetarian whether it's caring for pets or care, care for something love something yourself and something outside yourself and you'll that, that's that will take you to the next level i think no matter what happens in your life terry this has been amazing i'm so grateful that you came here and so thankful and then i see this inscription you mind if i read it no to barry you have given so much love and support to help so many people realize their dreams. I wanted to give you something back. Hope you have as much fun reading my book as I had working on it. Love and a hug, Terry Sweeney. Thank you so much for this book. Thank you so much for coming here. You are amazing. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for having me, really. It's been fun. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary, I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website, ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week. And one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on David Lepresti from Rochester, New York. You are a winner. Also, I figure I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on JCN NYC 36, five-star review on May 6, 2015, titled, Thank You. The review reads, highly entertaining and informative. Thank you, JCNYC36. Congratulations, you are a winner. 
As always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. <laughs> you get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, so it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave. Down in the valley, a fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.